Hello everyone, this is R.W. Lee, and you are listening to Evenings in Church History, the goal of which is to connect Christians to their past to influence the future. Let's get started. From the outset, I need to confess something to you. I may have lied. Well, fudged the truth just a little bit. I said at the beginning of the last episode that this was the start of a three-part series on Augustine. Well, I intended it to be a three-part series, but as I've begun to dig into the material and look at some of the biographical sketches that I have available, it appears that this series may extend a little bit longer. So I've decided to just say that this series will go on until we're done exploring Augustine. It could take four episodes, it could take eight episodes. Um, It's not really going to be up to me, it's up to the materials. So with that being said, I'm looking forward to continuing our study and let's dive in. Augustine was baptized in March of 387, but not long after this, he decides he wants to return to his homeland of North Africa to pursue his career as a professor of rhetoric. He had earned a little bit of notoriety in the past, and it was something that he knew he was good at. So now as a newly catechized, newly baptized Christian, this was to be his life. He was to set sail from the port of Ostia with his mother Monica in tow and begin his life shortly after they arrived. Yet while in the port of Ostia, Augustine's mother Monica falls ill from some sort of an infection. It would be about two weeks later before she passed away. She was at the time 56 years old and Augustine 33. He describes the event as saying that her pious and devoted soul was set free from the body. While him and his mother were staying in Ostia, they shared this remarkable visionary experience where Augustine describes reaching out and touching heaven as if it was something tangible, a reality that they were experiencing in the here and now. Right after this, in book 9, chapter 10 of his Confessions, his mother says to him, My son, for my part, I find no further pleasure in this life. What I am still to do, or why I am here in the world, I do not know, for I have no more to hope for on this earth. There was one reason and one alone why I wished to remain a little longer in this life, and that was to see you, a Catholic Christian, before I died. God has granted my wish and more besides, for I now see you as his servant, spurning such happiness as the world can give. What is left for me to do in this world? Augustine says that he doesn't really remember the answer that he gave to her. And it would be about five days later that she would fall ill and begin her battle with the illness that would take her life. This was a remarkable moment in Augustine's life. And in a way, the sort of apt conclusion to his past. Monica represented the Christian influence on his life as a cultist and as a former pagan. Before his Christian life, she prayed for him vigilantly, and Augustine views her in a very saintly manner. So when she passes away, it's like a closing of a book. 
it's appropriate yet a large, largely impactful moment in Augustine's life. You feel what he feels as he describes this great wave of sorrow that surges into his heart, the overflowing tears and the remarkable sadness of losing someone that is so precious. And yet, in Augustine's mind, there is no doubt that she is in a better place, that even though her body is laid to rest, it is her soul that is now rejoicing in paradise, a paradise that one day he will share with her. Oftentimes when we're viewing these figures of church history, it's easy to kind of slap this two-dimensional stamp or characterization or straw man, if you will, on top of them. Yes, Augustine was an impactful personage. He shaped Western Christianity greater in a more profound way than anyone outside of perhaps the Apostle Paul and Martin Luther. And yet, Augustine was also a man. He was human. And something I hope to do in this podcast is to help us to connect with that side of history as well. Yes, these people did great things and God revealed deep truths to them. And yet they were also profoundly human. At the death of Monica, we see an Augustine who at his core was just a young man who lost his mother. Someone who he loved and had influenced him greatly who had held a prominent position, something that no one else in his life had ever held. He loved Monica dearly, and yet when she dies, he tries to bottle up his tears. He tries not to weep. He tries to be strong, to show a face of great faith in the face of such a great loss. And yet he is so bogged down by his misery, he decides to even go and to go to the bathhouse to try and, in some weird psychological ritual, wash away his tears. Later on that night, after going through all of these, this weird wave and mountaintop to valley of emotion, he thinks of a hymn written by Ambrose, one of Ambrose's evening hymns. It goes like this. Maker of all things, God most high, great ruler of the starry sky, who robing day with beauteous light, hast clothed in soft repose the night, that sleep may wearied limbs restore, and fit for toil and use once more, may gently soothe the careworn breast, and lull our anxious griefs to rest. Little by little, Augustine begins to feel once again. He starts to think of his mother and her devoted love for God. And as he says, the tenderness and patience that she showed him. Tenderness and patience as a pagan when he was a cultist before he came to Christ as a young Christian. How she treated him with such love and care. Augustine views her in a very saintly way, and it's in this moment that he finally allows the tears to flow freely, making of them, he says, a pillow for my heart. And after this, he rests.
even though he questions his weeping for his mother as perhaps being a sin, I think anyone who has experienced loss can identify with this and feel the humanity in Augustine. It was another year or so before Augustine was finally able to return to his home country. He intended to live in a community of believers. He wanted to live the ascetic life in a kind of philosophical repose where he could separate out from the world. He penned a rule or a code of ethics to live by, one that he would devote himself to, and he did for a time. But this is not the end that God had intended for Augustine. By 391, he was ordained into the ministry. By 392, he was debating publicly. By 393, he was presenting at the Council of Hippo, and by 394, doing the same at the Council of Carthage. So it wasn't any surprise by 395 that his notoriety had led him to become the bishop of Hippo. And it was this position that Augustine would stay in until his death in 430 at the age of 76. Once Augustine becomes the bishop of Hippo, we see him step into this role as a shepherd excellently. He not only cares for his congregation with a gentle touch a shepherd would towards a sheep, but also at times defend the wolves with his staff. He produces remarkable writings against the Manichaeans, of whom he was formerly a part of, the Donatists, who we will see at a later episode, the Arians, who denied the deity of Christ and had done so for years prior to Augustine, and finally, the Pelagians, the dreaded Pelagians. Augustine's arch nemeses, right? Well, these groups Augustine viewed as his personal uh, targets. He wanted to defend against hollow and deceptive philosophies, against people who he knew would be real challenges to the intellect and to the heart of his congregation. Just like churches nowadays, there were those who were of an elevated intellect and those who were uh, of a more simpler mindset, and that was fine. Augustine knew that he had to cater to both of these groups, and that's precisely what he did through much of his writings. It's at this point that this episode is going to draw to a close, but I hope that you will join me in the next episode because we're going to talk about Augustine's controversies. Well, two of them precisely. We're going to first look at the Pelagian controversy and then finally the Donatist controversy. So next week we're going to ask the question of how did Augustine view election and predestination? What was the Pelagian view of, of election and predestination? And how exactly did Augustine respond to these things? What does original sin have to say about these issues? And what should we think about them today? Hope you will join me, and I'm excited to move forward. But for now, thank you for listening this evening in church history. <laughs>